Yeah, as, as we've been singing uh, different Christmas carols, which I love to do, uh, I hope I hope you do too. You know, it's it's funny in, in in our day and age, Christmas music starts on the radio the day after Thanksgiving, right? So maybe you've been listening to Christmas music for a month. Hopefully, you're not tired of it. I try to avoid that so that I don't get tired of it because I love Christmas music, uh, and it's good to sing it together as God's people. Curious, we're a small group this morning. A lot of folks have left the city, so we're cozy here. Uh, maybe a little interaction here. I'm curious, do you have any favorite Christmas carols? I'd love to hear about that. By the way, don't say Santa baby. <laughs> or Grinch or something like that. That's not, that doesn't count, right? O come Emmanuel. O come, O come Emmanuel. Yeah, that's an excellent one. Silent Night. I don't know who said that. Corey, you said that. Silent night. Hark the Herald, I heard. Came upon a midnight clear. Sorry? Mary, did you know? Yeah. Oh, come all you faithful, I heard. A holy night. Yeah. There's a lot of good ones. There's a lot of good ones. I was thinking about that. my question for myself. Do I have a favorite? I don't know that I have a favorite. I think from year to year, maybe I, I sort of uh, lock in on one over others as a favorite. But um, but this, here's the thing. I, I love Christmas music because Christmas carols are so often just so incredibly rich in content. If you consider what it is that we sing in our Christmas, our Christmas songs, you, you might notice this. I certainly have that some of the most theologically robust hymns or songs are actually Christmas carols. There's some of the, some of the, the songs that we sing in church, I think that, that are most clear in, in just a, a declaration of what the gospel is, of who Christ is and what he's come to do. Christmas carols are, are, uh, are fantastic for that. And, and I've titled uh, a short sermon here this morning after a, a line in one of my favorites, which is, and someone mentioned it, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. Listen to this stanza. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold Him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate Deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Some versions say pleased in flesh with us to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. And of course, Emmanuel means God with us, right? That stanza captures the essence of what we celebrate at Christmas. It's about the incarnation of Christ, right? The incarnation of Christ. And I'm going to make a, a bold, yet I think verifiable claim this morning that of all of the miracles that God has performed, the incarnation stands at the top as the greatest. And I'll try to explain that. But here's a quote from J.I. Packer that I think explains it well. He says this, he says, Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. He's, he's, he's saying this isn't fiction. It's true. This is truly a case where truth is better than fiction, but nothing even that we could imagine is as fantastic as the truth of the Incarnation. 
Incarnation is from the Latin word carne. Right? It means flesh. So the incarnation is, is, the, is coming in the flesh of God. And the Apostle John opens up his Gospel with an explanation of the significance of this doctrine. I want to encourage you to, to grab a Bible and open up to John chapter 1. If you want to use the Bible on the seat back in front of you, you'll find it on page 886. John chapter 1. It'll be on the screen as well. Let me read for you as, as John, John's account of, of, of Jesus' life. Unlike Matthew or Luke who start off with the, the story of the baby in the manger as we've been reading, John just kind of goes right to the heart of the, the sort of the theological implications of the birth of Christ and talks about this concept of incarnation. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Look down, if you would, to verse 14. And he says of this Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Look up again if you would. This is Trinitarian language. What John is telling us here is that the Word, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, was in the beginning, meaning that he is eternally existent. When he says that he was in the beginning with God, it means that he precedes the beginning, right? He, he, he wasn't begun. He was there at the beginning. He's got an eternal existence. And that he was both with God and he was God. In other words, what John is telling us here is that the Father and the Son, along with the Holy Spirit, are one. And that they share together in all of the divine attributes that make God, God. What, what are those attributes? What, what are those divine attributes that make God, God? Well, there's several, but, but I'll, I'll highlight a few of them. The first one I'll say is this. God is omniscient, which means that He is all-knowing. God is also omnipresent, meaning that He's everywhere. He's omnipotent meaning that He's all-powerful. He's immutable. He does not change. He's forever the same. And He's transcendent, which means that He's outside of space and time. He's above all of that, right? He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere. He transcends everything. This is what makes Him God. And this is what makes John's statement then in verse 14 of chapter 1 so incredible. He says the Word, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh. He came to earth incarnate. Which is to say this, that though immutable, unchanging, this eternal God forever became what He was not. He became a man. What we celebrate at Christmas is not so much the birth of a baby, as important as that is, 
But what's so significant about the birth of that particular baby is that in this birth, we have the incarnation of God Himself. We have the enfleshment of God Himself. And this enfleshment, if you will, of Christ appearing on this planet is not, get this, it is not that God suddenly changes. Again, He's immutable. doesn't sort of metamorphosis sort of change into a man so that the divine nature passes away and, and becomes then a human nature. No, the incarnation is, is not a subtraction as much as it's an addition where the eternal second person of the Trinity takes upon Himself a human nature and joins it together with His divine nature. The baby in the, in the manger has two natures. That's incredible. The baby in the manger has two Natures. He's at the same time fully God and he's fully human. He doesn't lose any of his divine attributes in that process, but he becomes holy like us in every way except one. And it's an important one. He's without sin. He's not born under the curse of sin, which is why the virgin birth is so important. If Christ had been conceived by two human parents, so if, let's say Joseph was his actual biological father and Mary his, his biological mother, then, then he would have had only one nature. He would have had a human nature. And if he only had a human nature, then he would be like the rest of us entirely, which would mean that he would be under the federal headship of Adam's curse. He would be born in sin. But because Jesus was begotten by the Father, and born of a virgin woman, he could truly be a man with a human nature and God with divine nature without sin and yet still be one person. And it's really important for us to understand that. This whole concept of the incarnation, this understanding of the two natures, that, that he doesn't lose any of his divine attributes and taking on all of the human attributes, that he's one somehow with two natures, it's really important. And it's not just theological ballyhoo. It's really important because if Jesus were just a man who had some kind of special anointing from God, he's a man with anointing. Or if he were God who simply just sort of uh, take possession of a human being's body. Well, then several significant things about his life and ministry would be lost. It's a, it's a key thing to understand that he is the God-man. The two natures of the God-man is such an important doctrine, in fact, that, that in the early church, several theologians and scholars and church leaders got together for, for almost a month and sort of lock themselves in a room to come up with an understanding of this doctrine and, and, to, and to put down ideas that, that he was maybe just a, an anointed man or just a, a, a God who possessed a human, but, but truly understanding the, the true natures, the two natures of him. They locked themselves in a room for about a month to come up with a statement to affirm what I've just said. And that statement was called the Chalcedon Definition, and it has become for Protestants, for Catholics, and for the Eastern Orthodox Church ever since the Orthodox understanding of who Jesus is. Those guys who got together and, and came up with that definition recognize that if we, if we get this wrong, we miss the Gospel. 
If, if, if we get this wrong, we miss out on knowing and appreciating the whole point of why Jesus came. So why then the incarnation? Why, why so important? What's accomplished by God becoming a man, taking on human nature, and at the same time retaining divine nature as one person? Well, there's, there's, there's four things I want to I highlight. And the first two I'll, I'll sort of lump together. And they're right here in the text in John 1, what we just read. The first one is this. It's to fulfill God's promise of being with us. Look at verse 14 again. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. And, and, and the, the language there literally means He tabernacled among us. It means that He pitched His tent among us. And it's, a, it's, an important, it's an important word that John is using here because he's pointing the people back to the significance of this coming. If you've been a part of, of Edgewater uh, over the last several months, you know we've been going through Ezra and Nehemiah, and, and previous to that we went through the book of Exodus, and we saw some important things about how God promised to be with His people. And He told them that, that they should construct the tabernacle, a tent of meeting where God's presence would come and dwell Literally, with the people. They, they were camped out in their own tents in the wilderness, wandering for those 40 years. And God says, pitch a tent for me. And I will come and I will be in the midst of you. I will be with my people. And He led them that way until such time as the temple was constructed under King Solomon. Solomon, God, God says to, to David, who wanted to build a, a permanent house for God, He said, no, not you. I'll build you a house but your son will build one for me. And, and the temple is constructed and we see in 1 Kings 5-8 through that, that process. And what happens most significantly there is that the presence of God comes and, and, and fills it. Again, it's the, it's the I will be with my people. The problem was that the people broke their covenant with the Lord. They, they disobeyed, they sinned. God warned them that that temple would be destroyed, that they would be exiled, and all of that happened. And, and we see in Ezekiel chapters 9 and 10 and 11 that the glory of God departed from that temple before it was destroyed. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, which we studied together as a church, what did they do? They came back into the land after that exile and they rebuilt the temple. But two significant things did not happen by the end of Nehemiah, which is the end of the historical record in the Old Testament. Those two significant things are these. One, they're still waiting for the return of the king in the line of David. And they're still waiting for the glory of God to come back into the temple. And that's why what John says here is so important. The Word became flesh and He tabernacled among us. His glory returned to the people. What does he say right after that? He tabernacled among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the second thing is, is He came to reveal the glory of God. And we see those two things that were missing fulfilled in the coming of Jesus in the flesh. If you read Matthew and Luke's 
gospel accounts, the story of the birth of Christ, they start off with genealogies that point to the fact that this Jesus came from the line of David. This was the announcement that the king is arrived. The the messianic Davidic king has come in the form of this child. And John says, and yes, and the glory of God has come too. He's tabernacled among us. The incarnation is so important because it fulfills God's promise of being with us and it reveals the Father's glory. The third reason it's important is that the writer of Hebrews tells us that, that His coming in the flesh was in part to empathize with our humanity. Hebrews 4.15 says, we, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's an important part of why Jesus came and why He came in the flesh. He became like us. He, he, he really he, he walked in our shoes. And that means that Jesus understands you. He understands me. Jesus knows sorrow. Jesus knows pain. Jesus knows loss. Grief. He walked in our shoes. And He knows temptation. In fact, Jesus knows temptation in ways that I think go above and beyond what any of us have ever faced. Because Satan took Him and tempted Him for 40 days and nights. And and if you read that passage in Luke 4, you recognize that those temptations, they ramp up and they ramp up and they ramp up. And they ramp up. And as Jesus doesn't bend or break, Satan just kind of turns the screws a little tighter. And I I think that Jesus, because He doesn't bend or break, experiences a temptation unlike any of us who usually bend and break at some point along the spectrum. There's nothing that you can do or have done or will do or will experience or will feel that Jesus hasn't experienced. He came in the flesh to sympathize with our weakness. And He walked in the shoes that not only we walk in, but could not walk in. He walked sinlessly. And then fourthly, perhaps most importantly, He came to die for our sins. If if you want to flip over to Philippians 2, it's the other passage I want to look at briefly this morning. Philippians 2, you'll find it on page 980 if you're using that pew Bible. Jesus fulfills God's promise of being with us. Jesus reveals the Father's glory to us. Jesus empathizes with humanity. And most importantly, He came to die. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here, Paul is talking about Jesus' incarnation as well. 
right? He came in the form and the likeness of men. Why? He says, well, first of all, that He emptied Himself to do this. What does it mean that He emptied Himself? What did He empty Himself of? Well, remember, He did not empty Himself of His divine attributes. This is part of, of the incredible miracle of the Incarnation. Jesus, though in the flesh, still is the omnipotent, omnipresent God. And all the other things that make God, God, right? None of that was, was given up. What was given up, what is emptied, is glory, is privilege, is, is exaltation. Jesus in the Incarnation makes Himself of no reputation. He humbles Himself. He allows His own divine exalted standing to be subjected to human hostility and human criticism and denial. He took the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of men. It's an amazing thing that He doesn't just come as a man. He comes as a slave. He comes in a station that carries with it no exaltation, no dignity, only indignity. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient even to the point of death, the shameful death of the cross. He literally became a nothing. That's what it means. He became a nobody in order that he could humble himself and do something that only a man could do. He died. And this death was necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. There's two key reasons why only the God-man could accomplish this. And just consider this. This is why the incarnation, the dual nature of Christ, fully God and fully man, is, is so important. Because on the one hand, only a perfect, sinless one with a divine nature, could walk and please the Father perfectly. Only one without sin nature could live the life that we can't live in our sin nature and please the Father perfectly, able then to offer that righteousness to us. Only God could do that. But only a human could die to make that sacrifice. There's another stanza in Hark the Herald. It says, Mild He lays His glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Jesus came to do many things. And He did do many things. He came to reveal God to mankind. He came to teach truth. He came to fulfill the law. He came to offer His kingdom. He came to show us how to live. He came to bring peace. And He came to reveal the love of God to us. But His ultimate purpose in coming was that He might die. You know, those little tiny hands and, and those little, and little feet in that manger on that morning were made fleshy because one day nails would be driven through those hands and feet as He hung on that rough-hewn cross 
that, that warm and soft little body that was wrapped in swaddling clothes, right? That, that little chubby baby would one day be ripped open by whip and spear. The, the shadow of the cross was there from the very beginning. So at Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation because without it, we have no hope. We have no hope. But because God is with us, because He came, because Emmanuel, God is with us, because the sinless God-man died for us, we're no longer slaves to our sin, we're no longer subjected to death, but by faith in Him, we can be made new. We can be made righteous. We can be made sons and daughters of God. You know, the, the, the great gift at Christmas is the gift of God's incomparable love. John later goes on to say, it's the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world, so loved us, so loved you and me, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever, whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. It's a gift, this incarnation. And as in any gift, it has to be received. A gift is given to be received. Now, how do we receive that gift? We receive it by faith. Faith is, 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 is the recognition and the admission that yes, Jesus is indeed God made flesh. It's, it's a recognition and admission that He lived the life that I could not live. That He died in my place for my sin. That I need His substitutionary sacrifice because I can't please a holy God in my own sinful nature. Only He could do that. And in repentance and faith, I admit my need and I turn from my sin and I trust Him to be my righteousness. That's what it means to receive the gift. Only a man could die. But only God could raise Himself from the grave. And Jesus, the God-man, did both. And by the way, the miracle of the Incarnation means that this immutable God, this God that does not change, has yet taken on flesh, become incarnate forever. Which is crazy if you think about that. He sits at the right hand of God right now in resurrected flesh. And one day we will be like Him. One day we will see Him face to face. This unchanging, eternal God is forever now united to us incarnate. That's why I think it's the most incredible miracle that God has ever performed. The immutable God became what He was not and remains that way forever. That's awesome. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then there's only one thing that for us to do, and that's to join with the hymn writer at Christmas time who simply said, Oh, come, let us adore him. He is Christ the Lord. So, Merry Christmas. Jesus is Emmanuel, he is God with us now. 
and forever. Father, thank you for this incredible truth. Like J.I. Packer, we have to say there is nothing in fiction that is so fantastic as the truth of the Incarnation. God, You came. You came as one of us. You walked with us. You know us. You reveal Yourself to us in Jesus Christ. And so it is because of that that we can know You. Because He lived that we can understand You. It's because He died that we can be forgiven and be in Your presence. So Father, as we celebrate this day, as we go from here and we're, we're, we're hearing more of the Christmas carols and reading the Christmas story and, and gathered together around Your people, may we be reminded in all of that that there's a miracle that happened. And it's the most wonderful good news that we could ever hear. Behold, on this day in the city of David, one is born for us that is Christ the Lord. Thank You for the gift of Your Son. We celebrate Him and we praise You in His name.